So, what has been exciting, and as Jono prayed, it was just a confirmation as we sang in worship, just a confirmation to the word that God has burdened my heart for today, because we serve a God who is a God of... Encounter. There we go. He is a God of encounter. He is a God that takes the initiative in reaching out to people's hearts. He's the one that called out to Adam and Eve in the garden while they hid. He's the one that called to Moses from a burning bush. He's the one that speaks to the hearts of people for the opportunity of not only us encountering him, but for him to encounter us as well. Because he knows what we need, he knows our heart's desire, and that the only fulfillment in life, the only contentment and purpose is discovered and found in him. And so today, actually over the next few weeks as we move into camp, we're going to be looking at the God who encounters us. And today we're looking at the God who encounters Elijah, that he is the God of comfort, That last song that we sang is what reflects Elijah's life. In James, we are told that Elijah is just like a human as we are. And we think, oh, wow, but Elijah is such a man of God. Elijah did some amazing things. Well, no, 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 no. God did amazing things through Elijah. And I found so many likenesses between Elijah and myself, not in the sense of being godly, but in the sense of being weak. And so we're opening a word of prayer as we look at this God who encounters us, this God of comfort who makes available to us, regardless of how we feel, regardless of our circumstances around us, and wants to impart to us his peace, his contentment, his love, and his mercy. So let's open in a word of prayer. And let's look at the scriptures together. Father, we thank you. Thank you that in every hour, in every minute, you have always been there. That in every triumph and in every failure, you are loyal to us. Father, we thank you for the reality of those lyrics we sang just before. And that those lyrics are fulfilled in your son, Jesus Christ. So we pray now in Jesus' name that you will meet with us now that you will draw us to yourself, and that you will change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. I like Elijah. I I like him quite a lot because he is a great biblical character. Like David, like Moses, like Peter, Elijah shows both the highest of the highs but also the lowest of the lows the great victories that are encountered, but also the great failures that are experienced. And so when we look at the Scriptures, with your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, and to provide a little context, in chapters 17 and 18, we have what God does through Elijah. How that God, through Elijah, Elijah steps out by faith upon God's word alone and confronts the king about the apostasy that the nation of Israel is going through. If you ever have a look at this, it's really interesting because, and I've shared this in the past, 
Elijah wasn't spoken to by God first to approach the king. He knew the promises of God and what would happen if Israel went apostate, when they would start worshipping idols. And if they did this, it's in Deuteronomy, it says that God would withhold the rain. So what does Elijah do? He sees idolatry. He sees disobedience. He says, this is not what the word of God says. And so he goes to the king and says, according to my word, it will not rain until I say so, based upon the word of God. And it was then that God speaks to him. It's really fascinating. That's why I think Elijah, as a man of courage, stepping by faith on the word of God is really awesome. It's a great example there. But he confronts the king about the heresy. He trusts God to supply all his need as he is by the brook Kerith. And then the ravens would come and bring him food. And then when that brook dries up, he performs the miraculous by going to the widow of Zarephath. While he's with the widow of Zarephath, there are the, 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 the unending jar of oil that he just keeps filling pots, filling pots, filling pots to sustain during that time. She, he raises her son who perishes during that time as well, during the drought. He confronts the king again and then the big face-off when 1 Kings 18 between the prophets of Baal and God and, and there's this whole thing that takes place which is huge and it results, it results in this. And chapter 18 verse 39, after God consumes the sacrifice that Elijah put, calls down fire from heaven. And this, it says in that particular passage that it consumes the altar, consumes the sacrifice, consumes all the water, and it says, and it consumes even the dust. Consumes even the dust. Because it says even the smallest of things can affect us. Consumes even the dust. And then the people yell, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then 450 prophets of Baal are put to the death because of such heresy performed against the living God. What an amazing victory. What an amazing, miraculous God. But isn't that like us? Not I'm saying that we go and call fire from heaven. We've never faced off against the prophets of Baal, but isn't that like us when we experience great victories? Where we're enthused, where God has intervened and, and came down and stepped and involved himself in each of our lives. And it could be something as simple as the overcoming of a continual temptation, the, the resistance of a certain sin, the, 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 the reconciliation between a relationship that has been broken. These victories that God can bring about, not just the big things, but the smallest of things, the changing of your attitude of heart, the desires that where you once found your enjoyment and your entertainment and your contentment in what you see in Netflix, you now find within the Word of God. Those, those amazing victories that take place and you're just like, yeah! And you're like, whoa! Sorry, a lot of sound effects. But you're excited. You're excited, you're enthused, and you feel close to God. Isn't that like us? And then what happens after such victories? Then what happens? We go on our camps, and we go on our camps, and we have a great time away at camp, and we're like, whoa, and we're walking on cloud nine, and you feel so close to the Lord. Then you get home, and the very next day, you're like, oh. And you fall and you crash and burn. That's the wrong word. But anyway, you know what I mean. You, you know what I mean. That's, that, that's sort of like what happens because this is what happens here. If you turn to your Bibles in, in, in chapter 19, when such stands for the Lord's are made, when such excitement and enthusiasm is taken with your relationship with God, what happens? You encounter opposition. 
Others don't like it. They don't like the stands that you make. They don't like the, the righteous values that you hold to. And because you stand differently, you will expect opposition. And what's sad is that you might even get other Christians oppose you as well. You might get other Christians that are far more discouraging than non-Christians. Oh, Joe, why are you trying to be so godly? Oh, Joe, aren't you Mr. Holy Joe now, are you? And you start getting all these little snarky comments as brothers and sisters end up being the ones trying to tear you down as you want to make a stand of righteousness and holiness upon the Lord. Well, this is the, the, I guess you could say, the reaction that Elijah got from Queen Jezebel, King Ahab's wife. And in chapter 19, verse 2, I will encourage you to read your Bibles. I didn't put very many passages up there because I want you to look at your Bibles. So, in chapter 19, verse, 20, verse 2, Queen Jezebel says this, May the gods deal with me. She's talking about her pagan gods. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life, meaning Elijah, like that of one of them, meaning the prophets of Baal. So she's basically saying, tell you what, may my false gods destroy me the way you, if I don't kill you, if, kill you Elijah. Now remember what Elijah's just experienced. He's just seen fire come down from heaven. He has seen people say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. He's seen this big revival. He gets threatened, and this is his response. He does a runner. He does a runner. He takes off. He retreats to a cave. What's worse? I don't know what's worse, but what's more, he does a runner, and then he prays for death. He is that upset. He is that strong. Uh, verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Verse 4, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. Oh, Lord, kill me. Lord, I, I don't understand just this overwhelming of pressure. And when you have such emotional stress, what does he do? He takes a kip. Honestly, I think that's a really wise decision sometimes. Sometimes you just need to sleep on it. Sometimes you need to rest. And then what happens? God ministers from verses 6 to 8. God ministers to this heart, ministers to this man as he, as he pours out his heart and everything. So the passage that I want to look at, is from verses 9 through to 18. But that's us again. Actually, no, that's not us. This, this, this is what reminds me of me. This is how I connect and identify with Elijah, where I can sit down, and yeah, I might experience some of the greatest of victories, and then have this huge fall where I feel alone, where I feel isolated, where I feel despondent. As I look at the circumstances, and the circumstances like a wave just overwhelm me and just weigh me down, and I'm thinking, Lord, I don't know. So maybe it would be better if, Lord, I just went to be with you. Maybe it would be better, Lord, if I could just give up. Maybe it would be better. And, and you just sit there, and, and as John shared, and as he prayed, just that may be you now. That may be the aloneness that you're going through. But we feel like just giving up. We feel like. Oh, Lord, I, I don't get it. 
whether we've given into temptation that we've always been warned about, whether we've earned because we've done so much good, we think we've earned ourselves a little bit of sin. Maybe we've gotten lazy and think we deserve a break and have a Kit Kat, whatever it might be. Maybe we've reacted to a circumstance thinking that we're doing okay. And what does it say in the scripture? Take heed wherefore you think you stand, lest you fall. Maybe there's that element of spiritual pride. Whatever it may be, we have downplayed the fact that our enemy is like a roaring lion who roams about, roams about, seeking whom he may devour. He doesn't rest. The enemy doesn't rest. The enemy doesn't take a break. The enemy watches you. The enemy knows the things that you'll give into. The enemy knows what buttons to push. And he never attacks you when you're feeling strong. He never attacks you when you're sitting there walking, walking well. He waits for that moment. If you read in 2 Samuel 11, it is not when David is out doing what he's supposed to do, leading his armies, that the enemy attacks him. What? It was when he was staying back, when he wasn't doing what he was supposed to, that he was tempted by a woman on a roof. And that drew his attention away. And it wasn't, uh, R. Kent Hughes puts it this way, Satan didn't fill David with a hatred for God at that moment. He filled his heart with a forgetfulness of God. And you forget who loves you. You forget who died for you. You forget how much you were cherished by your creator. But in a context such as that, in a context, just died. In the context of that loneliness, of, of that despair, of that aloneness is where we come to in this passage. I'm not going to read the passage. We're going to work our way through it because what does the Lord do? What does the Lord do in this context? And the first thing he does is this, which I think is so exciting. He meets us where we're at. He meets us where we are at. This is a beautiful truth that we've encountered in the gospel. When you look at the gospel, when you see what it tells us in scripture, we're the ones that are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're the ones preferring darkness rather than light. We're the ones who are trapped by our sinful desires of our heart and of our mind, not wanting anything to do with the Lord. We're the ones that have our backs turned on him, but by his grace, he comes to seek and save the lost. By his love, he dies in my place, being crucified for my sinful offenses, and it is by his sacrifice and his resurrection, he provides a way for a sinner like me to know forgiveness, to know redemption, to know life, to know renewal, because I now know him. That's what it's about. He meets us where we are at. Such is the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. That's what makes John 3.16 so beautiful, that he so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Thus, he meets us where we are at in saving us from sin. And then he does this. This is what I really find exciting. As we have been moved from darkness to light, 
And as we walk with him in that light, he continually meets us along the way. He continues to meet us where we're at. Even when we trip and fall, he's there to pick us up. Even when we start to stray off, he's there to redirect. Even when we feel defiant and don't want to go anywhere, he's there to walk with us. That is why he's called Emmanuel, because he is God with us. He meets us where we are at. So in this moment of discouragement that Elijah is going through, in this moment of loneliness, in this moment of despair, I read of a gracious God willing to meet with his child. In verse 9, I read this, that the word of the Lord came to him. He didn't seek after it. He wasn't even looking for it. The word of the Lord, while he's sitting in this cave, while he is sad, while he is isolated, while he's alone, the word of the Lord came to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? He knows why he's there. He's the omniscient, all-knowing God. He knows why he's there, but he's asking him, what are you doing here? He's giving him the opportunity to show his heart, to, to, to reveal his heart. Take note that this despair is because Elijah is being faithful. This despair is Elijah being obedient. He is threatened for making a stand, and so God doesn't actually chew him out. You know what we do when we tell people off? I'm spitting everywhere. I'm so sorry. You know what we do when we tell people off? I know I do this as a parent, and I've done it. I'm getting better, and I've told you this. I lecture my kids. Like, I don't just tell them off. I have, like, a lecture. I lecture so much that they roll their eyes, and when they roll their eyes, you lecture even more. That's what, that's what I, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking. God doesn't do this. God doesn't do this. God wants him to be honest. This is one of the greatest blessings that I learned with my elders back in New Zealand. Steve Courtney was a, well, was a real great influence on my life as a young Christian. Eamon, my, my mentor, who I, I connect with regularly. But these guys shared with me about being honest with God. Just being honest with him. And, and, and bearing your soul. Because when you read in verse 10, you read of this honest response from Elijah. Look at verse 10 in your Bibles. He replied, Elijah replies, he goes, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. He expresses his heart and says, Lord, I, I don't get it. We had victory, yes, but now my life is under threat. Lord, I, I don't quite understand. But it's in that honesty that God is able to work. It is in that honesty that God reveals the greatness of his power. It's in that honesty you see where his heart is at. And it's that, I think that's what, one of my biggest problems, I guess, is because I'm, oh, I have quite a, quite a, what's the word? Dominating personality. Okay, I'm, I'm you know what I mean? <laughs> okay, but... And, but it, because I have a dominating personality, it's very easy to try and hide over the reality of who I am, especially when it comes to God. That's why Bianca Adler, this lovely, she was a Jewish Romanian woman, 
And I remember, because I had my, I was like, wow, wow, you know, doing the, the big thing. Hey, I'm going to church, I'm serving faithfully. And this lovely, godly woman, she was led to the Lord by Richard Wormbrand. And she comes up to me, and she goes to me, what's wrong? I says, nothing. And she goes, no, what's wrong? And it was just, and it just like a, a shot to the face. She called me out on my false religiosity, and then she just said to me, never let anything rob you of your joy in the Lord. And then she went away. And I was like, wow. And then I, I repented. I repented. But that's, that's the reality of it. We, it's easy to put on the facade, but as much as you like can try to fool others, you don't fool the living God. You don't fool the Spirit of God. The conviction of the Spirit is still there. The conviction of Him working is still there. The reality of him moving in your life is still there. And so being honest with God, and that's what we read in the Psalms continually, don't we? We read in the Psalms the honesty. That's what I like about the Psalms. It's just the honesty of the heart. Psalm 22, 1, which is what the Lord Jesus quotes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 42, 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by my enemy? Psalm 43, 2, you are my God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Psalm 88, 14, why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? But it's in the honesty of their cries, in this position of, and there's this word again, in this position of need, in this position of need, the sovereign God of creation meets them where they are at. And he addresses that need with himself. Look at those other verses. Psalm twenty-two, nineteen: you are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Psalm 42, 11, I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 43, 8, I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. But what's really interesting is Psalm 88, because that is a depressing psalm. It's a depressing psalm. If you've got your Bibles, quickly turn there. I know it's good to get your Bible on your phone. You're probably there already. Okay? I'm an old man with my Bible, my paper Bible. Okay, Psalm 88. It's written by the sons of Korah. Okay? But there's a whole bunch, a whole bunch of things in here. Verse 5, I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Psalm 88 verse, um, verse 9, my eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up? And praise you. I like the very verse, last verse, verse 18. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. In Psalm. That's a depressing Psalm. But what it shows me is this that a God who hears the praises of his people is just as comfortable and is just as sovereign and is just as powerful and is just as authoritative in a life full of depression than it is in a life full of praise. He doesn't change, determine on how I feel. He's not afraid of your honest feelings. 
He's not afraid of your honest struggles. He's not afraid of you sitting there saying, Lord, I, I don't understand. He's not afraid of that. He is far bigger than your questions. He's far bigger than your doubts. He is far bigger than your hardships. He's not afraid of that. But he wants you not only to come to him, but he wants to come to you, to meet you where you are at. This is the comfort of God that not only meets us where we're at, but also listens to our heart's cry. And the way he addresses our heart's cry is done in this beautiful way. He tells us to look for him. He tells us to look for him. When we go out as a family, Nathaniel came up with this really thing. Now, as you can see, we're relatively tall. And so whenever we go out and we're in the city or anything like this, um, there's a couple of things, and Fifi, my sister, will, will know this. She'll know this. There's, there's a, when you're looking for somebody, when you're in Polynesian circles, you have a, a little call. And, and, and it does, she's smiling, she knows. <laughs> don't, don't cover your face, sister. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, and it doesn't matter where you are, unless you're in Mount Druitt, then everybody turns around. But... But, so in, but see, my, my family don't like that. They don't like that uh, because, look, you know, Dad, we're half married. And I said, like, oh, whatever, okay. So my son came up with the idea. Instead of me calling them like that, my son, he says, let's just do this. <laughs> and so my son will walk around. And what's amazing is that it works. It works. So we've got a whole bunch of people there, and you just see these two hands walking around. And so when I'm looking for my family, I was like, there he is. All right, and then... I know, I know where to go. I'm sorry. Maybe we should start doing it here. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Now, here's what's interesting. As we'll read in this passage in verses 11 and 12, God tells Elijah to go to the mouth of the cave and says, my presence is going to pass by. Look out for me. Look out for me. It says this, starting in verse 10. If you look in your Bibles, the Lord God said, the Lord said, go out. And stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Have you ever noticed how we can be consumed with identifying the big things in our Christian lives? I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. We look at the healings, we look at the provisions, we look at the deliverances, we look at the revelations, all wonderful things that we are blessed through God and, and, and things that we can testify of His involvement and in what He's doing and, and how He's working. But in the process of just looking for the big things all the time, we miss God in the little things. We miss God in the smile of a, of a brother or a sister's you know, face. We, we miss, we miss the, the opportunity to come alongside someone and, and to pray for them. We, we miss, we miss the, the blessing of having friends. We, we miss the, the, the joy, the joy of, of corporate worship. Jono and Carissa have been away for four weeks. To hear Jono share, he's happy to be back to hear us sing corporately, to see so many faces, some familiar faces, to see new faces, and how they're blessed to be back 
See, we miss God in those small things. I had a, I had a coffee with my, my brother and sister over at their place, a lovely cup of tea, and, and, and that, that small thing was huge in my life that God was able to use to encourage my heart, to build my soul. And so we need to be aware that, that He wants us in that loneliness, in that depression, in that isolation to look for Him. And you read in the Scriptures, Deuteronomy 4.29, if from there you seek the Lord your God, your God, you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Second Chronicles 15.2, the second part, talking to King Asa, the Lord is with you when you are with Him. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, he will forsake you. James 4, 8 in the King James, draw near, what says draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, which is a great verse I shared a few while ago. But what, is, what does the Lord say? You return to me, I will return to you. He wants us to look out for him. You see, this is why the Pharisees didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah is why the scribes couldn't see Jesus in Scripture. It's why the teachers questioned his authority because they were looking for the big thing. They were looking for the Messiah that would deliver Israel from the oppression of Rome. They were looking for the conquering king and not for the suffering servant. They were looking for the big thing. They missed out on Jesus. They missed out on the still, small voice, that gentle whisper because it wasn't what they expected, nor was it what they wanted. This is why we have to start training ourselves in recognizing the voice of God. We need to train ourselves to read and, and, and know the Word of God. It's, it's why reading and knowing the Word of God is so valuable. Why responding to the Spirit's prompting is so vital. It is so we can accurately know his voice, so we can identify his moving biblically, and then we can obey his voice, or his leading, should I say, willingly. Because when we do, when we do, then we see how he is working and how he instructs us for the future. You see, Elijah is bound by his circumstance and his vision. Even after recognizing the presence of his God, this, he, he's, still, he's still found, because we'll read in a minute in verse 15, sorry, verse 13, what his attitude, what his attitude is. But like I said before, this is why I identify with Elijah, because he's still looking down. He's still looking down and around, not up and about. It says he covers, verse 13, read with me. When Elijah heard it, look at this, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him a second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. He, his, his viewpoint hasn't changed. 
His circumstances haven't changed. His attitude hasn't changed. Even after all that he has witnessed, how familiar does that sound to me? This is how I identify with Elijah, that whenever God does reveal himself, I'm still so self-centered. I'm still overwhelmed by my circumstance that I can't see beyond this far. That's what I, that's what I get like. I, I don't want to speak on your behalf, but it prevents, we, we are so captivated by our struggle that it prevents our ability to see God be God. It's simple as that. When he's asked the second time, he says the exact same thing. But the way God deals with it, even though the weight of his circumstance burdens Elijah's heart, it is in this place of need, in this place of helplessness, at this point of disconnection with his God, that the God of all grace encounters him and then practically involves himself in his life to give him direction to give him guidance, to give him enlightenment, to give him comfort in his moving. From verse 15, we read this. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came to go to, go to the desert of Damascus. So he says, go back. So he encourages him with direction. He guides him with instruction. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, with Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Blesses him with enlightenment. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu, and he comforts him with his moving. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. That's amazing to know that God has still been moving amongst thousands of others of his people, to know God has given him enlightenment as to what's going to happen, to know who he has to go to and anoint, to know where he has to go. God has given him direction to bring him out of his knee, out of his self-centeredness, out of his isolation, out of his despair by God saying, this is what you do. This is how it's done. This is the beauty of Elijah's encounter with God, the God of all comfort, that in this weakness, God met him where he was at, lifted his eyes so that he could see his God, and in that lifting, walk him through that weakness by directly involving himself with his child. We serve the same God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in the loneliness and in the depression and the isolation and the despair that you might be in, this same reality applies to you as well. That he is a God who is able to give you direction in himself. He is the way. He told us that. He is the one that guides us with his instruction. I have written your word upon my heart that I might not sin against you. He is the one who blesses us with all enlightenment because he is the God of light. He is the one 
that comforts us because he is God of all comfort regardless of the situation that we're in. If we're a Christian and we find ourselves likened to Elijah at this stage of life, isolated and discouraged and alone, I am to lift my eyes to the hills Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Do you grasp the reality of this truth? Where does my help come from? I mean, honestly, if I have a problem with my phone, I don't have an iPhone, but if I did, if I did have an iPhone and it broke, which they tend to do, (sighs) sorry, but maybe, maybe having Steve Jobs there looking after it for you. Okay, I don't know how much work he actually did on it, but imagine he was there to fix it for me. Or, I don't know, I, I drive a, a Toyota Camry. Imagine having somebody, is anybody here a mechanic? No? But imagine having a mechanic here who could sit there and just go, it'll be fine, and, and to fix it that way. I know the maker of heaven and earth. He is the one who is my help. Him. What better person to have in your corner? no. What better person to be in their corner? That's the difference. Now, is is that easy? Is it easy to lift your eyes? No. No, it's not. But as I position myself in my weakness, I can get to partake of his strength. I won't read that verse, but you all know these verses. That is in my weakness, strength is found in my contrition. My comfort is found in his word, Psalm 119, which are great verses. It says, my comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. Verse 52 of Psalm 119, I remember, Lord, your ancient laws, and I find comfort in them. Verse 76, may your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant which then in turn does what? That as you look in the word, the word directs you to him. This is the God who comforts us. In our falls, he comforts us. In our failures, he comforts us. Even in our foolishness, he comforts us. And I pray that like Elijah, who was overwhelmed by his circumstance, that you might discover the God who meets you where you're at to comfort us, to respond to the God who invites us to seek him, to know true comfort, and to submit to the God who is working always and instructing us always for our comfort in him. Second Corinthians 1, 3 to 7. I just put up parts here. I'm going to read the passage to you. It says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we abundantly, sorry, just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, 
because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you shall share in our comfort. The comfort of the God who encounters you is the comfort we are blessed with by responding to the invitation he gives. I don't want to sound rude, but don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn. Don't plug your ears. Keep your voice open to meet with the God who meets with us, to look for him as he instructs us, and to trust him as he leads us. Yeah, that's our challenge for this coming week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, and who in him we can know true comfort, we can know true peace, we can know true life. I pray for those here today who may be feeling like Elijah, who may be feeling despondent, that may be feeling in despair, may be feeling alone or even disconnected. I pray that as you revealed yourself to Elijah, you will reveal yourself to them as well. That in the still, small voice, in the gentle whisper, you will call us to yourself and we will respond. I thank you that you meet us where we're at. Thank you that you direct us to yourself. Thank you for the encouragement and the confidence we can have in you because you are continuing the work that you began in us. Father, I pray we will know fully the, the, the fullness and the abundance of the comfort that you give us. And I pray that we will just draw closer to you and hold on to you with all we got. So we ask you to dismiss us now and thank you in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you very much for that, brothers and sisters. Thank you very much, everyone at home. God bless. Keep your eye out for the comfort of God, and we'll see you next week. See you later.